We're starting a new series today called The Table of Undeserving Friends. Uh, in this series, we, what we want to do is take a close look at hospitality. We want to understand what it means to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Because, you know, we do this in the service every week. We take some time in our worship as an act of worship to welcome people around us. Uh, we do this in community groups throughout the week as we welcome people over a meal. And we want people to model this in their lives as we welcome any and all people into our lives throughout the week. Uh, and so in the series, our hope is to, is to dig deeper into these practices. We want to get to the very heart of why we welcome people in this way and what actually empowers us to do so. And the best way to do this, I think, is to simply pull up a chair to God's table. One of the most powerful pictures of the kingdom of God throughout the scriptures is a great banquet feast. And so in this series, we're going to lock eyes with some of the unexpected guests at God's banquet table. We're going to listen carefully to their stories because hospitality is best learned through practice and not theory. So each week we'll look at an Old Testament passage and the next week we'll look at a New Testament passage and we're going to look at how surprising God's guest list is. We're going to meet sex trade workers and queens, uh, the crippled, quarreling sisters, foreigners, those we once hated, military captains, widows, and even sinners. And the list could go on because God's table has always been a table of undeserving friends. And each of these friends will have something to teach us about God's welcoming grace. And so we're going to start this series with a brief but memorable moment from the life of King David, 2 Samuel chapter 9. And at this time in David's life, uh, he's assumed the royal throne of Israel. God has established him. He's doing well. He's seen victory over his enemies. Things are getting done. But now David, he wants to extend an unprecedented welcome, a remarkable act of hospitality. And, he, and so he does, uh, to an obscure man named Mephibosheth. Yes, I had to practice that. Uh, good on Jen in the reading. Uh, to be fair, let's all practice saying it together. Mephibosheth. Yes, exactly. Mephibosheth. Uh, it's hard to say, and I know you might be thinking, well, who is uh, Mephibosheth? Um, that's okay if you don't know. Uh, he's in a chapter that's often overlooked, but I think this is one of the most powerful and beautiful moments of grace in the entire Old Testament. And as we'll see, how David welcomes Mephibosheth is just breathtaking. And it makes us ask, what drives David to extend such a radical, unprecedented, breathtaking act of hospitality? What drives him? And it should cause us to ask, what should drive us to do so as well? Why should we welcome any and all people into our lives in such unprecedented ways? So as we pull up a seat at God's table today, we're going to lock eyes with Mephibosheth and listen to his story of God's welcoming grace. So open your Bibles with me if you have one to 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David, he desires to show kindness. Kindness, that's it. That's what's driving David in this chapter. And if the key to hospitality is simply showing kindness, if all it takes is being kind to those around us, then most of us, we're probably doing okay. 
We get kindness. We get being courteous and nice to people. You know a simple good day to which you respond, good day to you, fine gentleman, or good day to you, fine gentlelady. You know, uh, we can do that. Is David, though, just trying to be a really nice guy? Not really. Kindness, as we understand it, isn't what's happening here. The Hebrew word for kindness is hesed. Uh, it could and should be translated as loving kindness or steadfast love. It's a quality of love. A steady, faithful, enduring, unswerving, committed love found only in a covenantal relationship, an unbreakable relationship. You could call this covenantal love, which is what we'll call it for the remainder of the morning. Covenantal love. Think of the parents who have um, a child who's verbally autistic and the sacrifices they make to care well for their child with very little reward. Why do they do it? because they see their relationship as unbreakable, bonded by their love for their child. Think of the wife who continues to visit her husband in the home where he has dementia and no longer recognizes her or remembers her name, and has even fallen in love with one of the other residents, and the wife who goes week after week to care for her husband. They have an unbreakable relationship. They have a covenant of love. In both of these examples, their actions are determined by covenant love. And Scripture gives us amazing pictures of this sort of love. Uh, just one quick example. Think of Ruth. Her husband died. Uh, well, and she should, she should remarry. She's young enough she could remarry, but instead uh, she decides to stick it out with her mother-in-law. And let's be honest, that's a miracle in and of itself. She sticks it out with her mother-in-law. Why? Why does she stick it out with Naomi? Naomi had no one. She was vulnerable. She had, she had lost her husband. She had lost both of their sons. They were all dead, and she was widowed and alone. And so Ruth, she decides to stay, but Naomi tries to convince her to go off. And what does Ruth say? Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. That's so much more than kindness. That's covenantal love. There's no foreseeable advantage. It was costly. It was limiting. Ruth is giving up some of her freedom. She's giving up other options. She is limiting her choice for the sake of love. And it was sacrificial and exceedingly generous on Ruth's behalf. So yes, said is a kindness of sorts, but it's a far deeper kindness. It's covenantal love. It's not simply putting on a nice smile and a momentary warm welcome. That's not David's motivation here. David wants to extend covenantal love. And that's problematic for us. It would be a lot easier if the scriptures just called us to be nice. You know, it would be far easier if the scripture had commands like, just smile at people when you walk past them. You know, or uh, when, the, when you're in the elevator and someone's coming to get in it, you know, like don't just press the closed door while smiling, but really you know, closing the doors on them. You know, or a command like, you know, stand on the street with a sign that says free hugs and just give some people some free hugs, man. Uh, we could handle that. We could handle that over love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you and who hurt you. 
You see, kindness, as we understand it, it doesn't actually require much of us. A smile, a polite hello, a courteous act, that's easy. But that's not what David's modeling for us here. If we settle for that kind of kindness alone, it's not actually going to lead to true hospitality. Because the sort of welcome that David wants to extend isn't short-lived. It's not a one-off event. It's to establish a lasting, life-giving relationship. And of course, this involves kindness, but it also involves so much more. The problem is if we settle for mere kindness, we're also settling for disposable relationships. Why? Because you don't have to invest yourself. You don't have to open yourself up. You don't have to endure. You can be kind while holding people back at arm's length. Kindness, it allows minimal commitment and effort, and it doesn't lead to meaningful relationships at all. Vancouver is kind, abundantly kind. People are quick to be helpful and give directions and be polite, except for one man in the city. I had a, a friend visiting from Texas, and they were driving, and they pulled over to ask for directions, and I guess the guy was having a bad day, and he said, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Very out of character for Vancouver. Uh, by and large, very kind. Vancouver, abundantly kind. In, in 2012, the Vancouver Foundation released a report called Connections and Engagement. Uh, and and it, was, it, this, it was exactly this. They explored connections and engagements in communities throughout Metro Vancouver. And the report has a surprisingly happy cover for how deeply depressing it is. Uh, the foundation concluded, uh, Metro Vancouver can be a hard place to make friends. Hard place to make friends. Our neighborhood connections are cordial but weak. And many people in Metro Vancouver are retreating from community life. For example, 42% of people in Vancouver for longer than five years, longer than five years, reported having three or fewer close friends. And one of four people said that they're alone more often than they'd like. It's an epidemic. Ella Wheeler Wilcox, poet at the turn of the last century, she wrote this. So many gods, so many creeds, so many paths that wind and wind, while just the art of being kind is all the sad world needs. But Vancouver is proof that kindness in and of itself isn't enough. It doesn't lead to true hospitality. It doesn't lead to life-giving relationships. Kindness allows relationships to be disposable, and the sad world needs more than mere kindness as its remedy. Because Vancouver has plenty of kindness, but people are still isolated and alone. So if we're going to be a community that models true hospitality, we need to move beyond the big hello, the good handshake, a nice to meet you, pleasant warmness. These are good things. But people in our city, people in this room, are lonely and isolated. And it is a dislodging experience and a painful experience. I, when Julia and I moved back to Vancouver in, in the beginning of 2012, a lot of my friends had moved away. And I think for the first time in my life, I actually experienced loneliness on a daily basis for about two years. And I'm honestly one of the most networked people I know. I don't have a problem taking initiative. I don't have a problem meeting people. But time and time again, I would meet people, and it was always at arm's length. Oh, nice to meet you. So glad you're here. Couldn't get people to build meaningful relationships. It's hard. 
We need more than just warm welcomes. We need more than kindness. We need to be met by a hospitality that is driven by covenantal love. Because covenantal love brings strangers into meaningful, life-giving, lasting relationships. And this is a really difficult thing to do. Because frankly, we would rather reserve that sort of kindness, the, the kindness that David is exhibiting, for our closest friends. We want to keep that circle small. We don't want to make room for yet another person at the table. And there's some wisdom to this. You know, we can only maintain so many relationships. Yet, if we're going to show David's sort of kindness, it won't solely be to those we already love. Jesus himself says, what is it to you if you already love those who love you? Take note also of who David shows kindness toward. Look at verse 1 again. He asks, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? The house of Saul. Do you remember Saul? Saul is his predecessor, the one who murderously campaigned to kill David and forced him into exile. Saul, the one who broke up David's marriage. And even though David could and should see Saul's household as a threat and even as enemies, David wants to show kindness to them. And this flies in the face of all cultural norms at that time. Uh, when a new regime came into power, the name of the game was Purge. It was Purge. You eradicated all of the old king's household and anyone that was loyal to them. A new, a new king would do this to establish their power, but David pushes against this. He chooses to love his enemies. He wants to show loving kindness even to Saul's household. David, he's willing to make more space at the table, not for someone who deserves to be there, or even for someone he would prefer to be there, but even for someone who should be categorized as an enemy. Mere pleasantries and kindness then won't cut it. And I think in this way, David, uh, the way he shows kindness is a lot like grace. It's a steady, loving Kindness that is unwarranted and cannot be repaid. A love that brings someone into a life-giving relationship, an unbreakable relationship, but not on the basis of deserving it, because it will be shown even to enemies. And so we read on in verses uh, 2 through 5. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. They called him to David, and, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Mashir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mashir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Ziba. Oh, Ziba. The rest of Samuel will go on to show that Ziba is not a man to be trusted. But here, Ziba lets David know that, yes, there is someone from the house of Saul whom he can show kindness to. There's a son of Jonathan. And Ziba adds in verse 3, crippled in his feet. You should hear this as a hesitation, a caution. Ziba says, ah, David, crippled. In other words, David, are you sure? Are you sure? He doesn't have the appearance of strength and power. He's not uh, 
kingly quality, David. But David, he doesn't even flinch. He just says, where is he? David isn't concerned about appearances. He's not concerned about worthiness, the quality or looks of the person. It doesn't matter to David. And this is pretty shocking because a king usually surrounds himself with the seemingly flawless, the beautiful, the people who have the best resumes, the pristine, the people who look powerful and have influence. And if we're honest, we often succumb to this. You know, we all have our own individual standards that we uphold, but uphold them we do. We tend to surround ourselves with people who look somewhat like us, people who act somewhat like us, people who talk somewhat like us, somewhat like us. But do you know what this is? It's self-worship. You're worshiping the image of yourself that you see in the other. David, he doesn't give in to this. He's willing to let his table look diverse and different. And what we don't want to miss is that covenantal love takes the initiative. David doesn't sit around waiting to see if someone shows up that he likes. He's not scrolling through Facebook events to see which one will be the most prestigious. Uh, he asks, and he searches, and then he takes action. And David, he sends people to bring Mephibosheth to himself. And so we read on in verses 6 and 7. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face, paid homage. And David said, Meshibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. Mephibosheth gets summoned to the king's court. He's brought out of obscurity. He's terrified. Remember, the name of the game in his time was extinguish the old regime. Try to put yourself in Meshibosheth's shoes. Let's call him Miffy from here on out. You're walking with practical certainty towards your death. You're about to die. Your time is up. You would be trembling. Your mouth would dry up. Your heart would be racing. Fear would wash over your entire being. And top of it all, you can't run from it. You have been summoned and escorted to this place and moment. But then you hear the surprising, unexpected words. Do not fear. Miffy comes before the king expecting death. That ruined the moment. But, uh, but then he hears the words, Do not fear. David, he goes on to say, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore you to all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage. He said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? A staggering act of hospitality and welcome. So much so that all Miffy can say is, what is your servant that you should show regard to a dead dog? A dead dog such as I. He knows that what David is doing is far beyond anything he could ever deserve. He's undeserving. He's not worthy. He thought he was as good as dead, a dead dog, but David shows him mercy. He shows him regard. He lifts him up, and on top of that, David makes a decree that establishes him as a very wealthy man. All the land of Saul is restored to him. He's given all of Ziba's family as servants. And on top of that, 
David also decrees that he will always eat at the king's table. Always. Look at verses 11 through 13. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Three times in this chapter, we're told that he ate at the king's table. He ate at the king's table. This is a remarkable privilege. We're even told that he became like one of the king's sons. You can understand why Miffy is taken by surprise. Imagine his relief. You think you're about to die, and you don't die. That alone, good enough. But then to be accepted and brought in out of obscurity, where he had been living was in the middle of nowhere. And on top of that, to be brought out of isolation and loneliness and welcomed as he is. Not pushed off in the corner, but welcomed at the table as a broken man. This is breathtaking. And even more so, when you understand that Miffy, as Saul's grandson, was technically an heir to the throne. But he lost that privilege when, when God appointed David to be the next king. And the truth is, you know, Miffy, he, he hardly had a kingly appearance because of his disability. It's mentioned twice, and this is where the passage ended. He was lame in both of his feet. Earlier in Samuel, we're told that in an accident, his nurse dropped him when he was five, and he was forever damaged from that moment onwards. And this alone in that time and place would have made it impossible for him to ever become king. The ancient world was not accessible. The ancient world was not kind and, and understanding of people in these sorts of situations. So even if Miffy had claim to the throne, it was never really on the table for him. Because he was flawed. Because he was lame in both of his feet. Now, now, David restores the dignity and status that Miffy had lost. A dignity and status he did not deserve, but is freely given to him because of David's desire to show him covenantal love. He's brought into the royal family. He's treated exactly like family, irregardless of how others may perceive his weaknesses. He always ate at the king's table. Note that, always. This isn't just sometimes, not just once, not just for show. This is a permanent change in status. He goes from deserving to be David's enemy to being loved as a son of the king. And it's a risky and vulnerable move on David's part. David has now given Miffy access to the entire kingdom. He has restored his political and economic uh, prosperity. If Miffy wanted, as a true heir to the throne, he could start a counter-movement with Saul's uh, still supporters that were around. It's a risky move on David's part, but covenantal love takes risks. It, it moves itself into positions of vulnerability. It lays down power for the sake of building a life-giving, ongoing relationship. But if we pulled up a seat beside Mephibosheth at God's table, what do you think he would tell us? 
I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be here. I deserve death, but I was shown mercy. I was shown an unprecedented kindness that changed my entire life. I was welcomed at the king's table, and I became like one of his own sons solely because he sought me out and desired to show me God's loving kindness. How can I be anything but loyal in return? David has shown me just how kind and loving God is towards me. And Phibosheth, he was loyal to David for his whole life. Because when you experience that sort of kindness, this sort of covenantal love, it takes root in you. It changes you. But all of this should cause us to ask why. Because it's not easy to show this sort of love to people. In fact, it is not a natural disposition. So why does David decide to show this sort of kindness? Covenantal love, a love that pursues enemies and the weak, a kindness that overlooks differences and flaws, a love that makes room and space for others, a love that takes risks and is willing to be made vulnerable. Why? Look at verses 1 and 7. David does all of this for Jonathan's sake. He does all of this for Jonathan's sake. So we need some more backstory. God, he sent Samuel to anoint David to be king. And Saul, he didn't like this, mostly because Saul didn't want to give up the throne, but also if there was going to be an heir, he wanted it to be his son. And yet, although he was the rightful heir, Jonathan, Saul's son, became close friends with David. Jonathan understood that David had been anointed by God to be the next king. And David and, and Jonathan had a deep, deep friendship. Believe me when I tell you this, they transcended BFF status. Uh, we're told that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. You ever had a friend like that? In Samuel chapters 18 through 20, we're told of a covenant of friendship that they made. And there's even this place where Jonathan's swearing love and loyalty to David. He says, if my father is trying to kill you, I will protect you from him. I'm going to do everything I can to be loyal to my father because I have to be loyal to my father. But if he is indeed trying to kill you, I will protect you. And then Jonathan takes off his robe and he takes off his sword. And you know what that meant? Is giving up his throne. And because Jonathan saved David's life from his father, yet also remained loyal to his father Saul, he was stuck. He was put in a tough position, and he had to go along with his father and support his father. And he was finally killed with his two brothers and with Saul in a hopeless battle on Mount Gilboa. And David says, I want to show kindness to someone, the kindness of God for Jonathan's sake. Because the friendship David had with Jonathan revealed the kindness of God to David in a palpable way. David had a friend who loved him covenantally, and that's why David could love Mephibosheth. He could risk his life to love him because of what Jonathan had done for him. David had a friend who put himself in front of harm's way to take David out of harm's way. A friend who lost his throne so that David could ascend to the throne. What a friend. What a remarkable friend. David had a friend like that. 
so do you. Tim Keller puts it this way. David had a friend who lost an earthly throne. But we have a friend who lost a heavenly throne to save us. David had a friend who died on Mount Geboa for him. We have a friend who died on Mount Calvary for us. Jesus actually says this in John 15. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. I no longer call you servants. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Jesus is the one who first loved us and sought us. And we know this because Jesus is the one who laid down his life for us. Not while we were good, Paul writes in Romans 5. Because, you know, for a good person, someone might dare to die. But while we were enemies, while we were sinners, while we were weak, while we were ungodly, Christ died for us. How could we ever deserve that? We can't. You see, you can be the kindest person in the world. And that's not insignificant. But your kindness doesn't warrant that sort of action. And God, he doesn't pursue us based off of the quality of our character or our looks or the quantity of kindness we've shown in our lives. God simply pursues us because he is a covenant-keeping God who shows love to the people who do not deserve it. He shows love because he's a gracious God. And like Mephibosheth before David, we should shake in fear before God. We deserve death. We've been his enemies. We've rejected him. We've run from him. We've thwarted his kindness over and over and over again in our lives. And we don't deserve him to show us this sort of covenantal love. And yet God says to us, do not fear. God the Father shows us mercy and covenantal love for his son's sake. And Jesus, God has shown us mercy while we deserve death. And Jesus, he lifts us up from being enemies and makes us children of God. And he invites us to sit at God's table always. And he will not let us go. He brings us into an unbreakable relationship. What a relief. If we take an honest assessment of ourselves, we know that we are unworthy before God, that God is not required to show us any love, and yet when we come into his presence, our fear is overcome by his profound love and grace and mercy towards us because of what Christ has done for us. And we're welcome, and we're accepted as we are, as broken as we all, and all the shame that is dripping from our bodies and our souls and the guilt that we feel and the things we're embarrassed about, the things that we think, if anyone knew that about me or could see that about me, they wouldn't want anything to do with me, and yet God welcomes you. With all your weakness. And it's that sort of love. That sort of kindness that changes people, that changes the world. We don't need mere kindness. We need Christ's covenantal love. And it's that sort of love that builds meaningful relationships. It's that sort of love that overcomes loneliness and isolation. It's that sort of love that crosses racial divides. It's that sort of love that looks past physical differences and that sort of love is available in abundance. 
It's unlimited. It's seeking after you. It's free. And Jesus is offering it to you. You have a friend who laid down his life for you, who wants to bring you into his family. And if you receive his radical invitation, God will treat you as his own son or daughter. All you have to say is, all I know of me to all I know of Jesus. As imperfect as I am, I want that friend. When you experience that sort of kindness, when you experience that sort of covenantal love, it gets into your bones. It changes the fabric of who you are. That's what happened to David. That's what happened to Mephibosheth. That's what will happen to us. When you experience that sort of kindness and love and grace, you can't help but start to extend it to others. And as we start this series, as we look at different pictures of hospitality, I want us to remember this. The basis for all of it begins and ends with Christ. Christ first sought us and welcomed us, and that's why we welcome others. But in welcoming others, we are simply trying to welcome them to Christ's table. We're trying to exhibit in a small way Christ's profound love for them through us. We're only pointing them to Christ. Because we have a king who welcomed us in a radical, unprecedented, and breathtaking way. 